This is the CQ University Australia podcast, where we talk to some of the university's interesting characters. Hi, you're with Izzy Symes for CQ University's podcast, The Grapevine. I'm in the far north city of Cairns, speaking with School of Education and the Arts Associate Lecturer Karen Crone. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Izzy. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. No worries. Firstly, tell me a little bit about your role here at CQ Uni. Um, I'm the head of acting. Well, I call myself the head of acting. Um, I'm a bit of an actor, as you can hear. <laughs> um, so I've been here since the beginning of last year when we decided to open up the Bachelor of Creative Arts here in Cairns. Our VC decided that, you know, we needed to have a presence in the creative arts and as anybody that has ever been to a small country town or anywhere that you think is bereft of artistry, you've only got to scratch the surface and you will find the greatest artists. Artists are a bit like organs, I suppose. They pop up in the craziest places. So that's what I'm doing here. I'm running the acting and I've got my first years and my second year. So we're into our second year. What, um, as a, an educator, what's your favourite thing about teaching? Uh, I think it's that moment when um, the student, there's a realisation, you can see it in their eyes, and they suddenly go, oh, bang, and the, the penny drops, and you go, oh, that's fabulous. But I suppose the other thing too is that as educators, we don't often know what impact we are having on students until much, much further down the line. And here in Cairns, we have a young lady that has come to work up here with the professional theatre company, Jute. And she rang me before she came up here. And I actually taught her at high school at Red Bank Plains, which is near Ipswich in Brisbane. And she was 12 or 13. And I made her go for an audition. Wesley Enoch, who is now the artistic director of the Sydney Theatre Company, uh, Sydney Festival, sorry, not the Sydney Theatre Company, Sydney Festival, was calling for auditions. And she just popped out of the entire group. She was only 13 at the time, lots and lots of attitude, really, you know. (laughs) And now here she is a creative executive producer for Jute and it's like, and we are working together and she's now my colleague and it's like, this is my student. I was 30 and she, well, don't do the adding up now. Don't do the adding up. Yeah, so those sorts of moments where students come back to you and there's a realisation that, you know, sometimes you think they're not learning anything and then, you know, they come back and they say, actually, I learned an enormous amount. I just didn't tell you at the time, you know. Yeah. That must be really, you know, it must touch your heart, I guess, you know. Oh, absolutely, because I don't have children of my own. I don't know how that happened, but it just happened. And, you know, I often say to mum, oh, you know, I didn't have kids. Why didn't I have kids? And she says, well, think of all the people you have taught. You have taught so many people over such a long time. And had you had your own children, you may not have been able to give as much as you've given. So I think... Yeah, the impact. Teaching, I think, is an incredibly demanding job. And I think teachers across the board, particularly, you know, primary school and high school, need to be regarded a lot greater in our community because they are the ones that fuel the ideas to go on to further their careers in particular disciplines. And, um, yeah. It sounds like you've been teaching for some time. (laughs) Well, I have. I mean, I'm teaching full-time for CQU. Um, but I have taught at other universities that I won't mention, but I have taught at other universities, particularly teaching drama, because that's what I have done since I was a little girl. You know, I started in Rockhampton, which is, you know, our 
you know, what would you call it, you know, headquarters, I suppose, for CQ Uni. And uh, that's where I grew up. And I grew up in Rocky doing, at, at, you know, performing at every bum fight, being in every Estedford, every concert, every show. I'd done something like 10 musicals before I'd finished high school. And it was like, and I played the lead in a lot of them. And so the natural progression was to become an actor. And everybody in Rockhampton in the 70s laughed and said, oh, you can't be an actor, you come from Rockhampton. And I went, that didn't make any sense to me, is it? It just, I went, so you've got to be born in a particular place to be a particular person. It just made no sense to me. And so I went on and I studied down south and my very first audition, I started work for the State Theatre Company and next thing I'm performing for the Queen and I went, well, those people in Rockhampton didn't know what they were talking about, you know, clearly. clearly. And so... It's, it's, you know, each of us, we all have individual journeys and that's how we choose to walk the path. But it's up to us too to embrace it. It's up to us to say, that's what I want and I'm going for it. I'm just going to take it. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it and achieve it. You mentioned Rockhampton and you mentioned, you know, being a young girl and doing your Stedfords and things like that. Let's rewind to a very (laughs) young Karen. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, I grew up in Rockhampton, as I said. Um, I was a, I was a, an activated young girl because I was dancing from a very young age. So I started dancing at the age of three and a half purely because the lady across the road was a dance teacher and her daughter was the same age as me. But they were the Catholics across the road and we were the naughty Protestants opposite them. And, of course, we went to dancing of an afternoon because mum needed a babysitter one afternoon. And she said to the lady across the road, you know, would you look after Karen? And she said, oh, look, I've got to teach dancing this afternoon, but she can come with me. So from a very young age, I was sitting in a kid's pen with Madonna watching these butterflies, these human beings fly through the air and in tutus. And they were just, it was magical. And then we did at the end of that year at the Buffalo Hall where my parents actually got married, had their reception actually, um, we did I'm a Little Teapot and Madonna wet her pants and I sucked my thumb and the audience went wild and I went, oh, this is pretty good. I quite <laughs> like this. So that sort of started me. And so at primary school I was always good at you know public speaking and always very keen to activate in performances but I was quite entrepreneurial. In the street that we lived, I would go along and I would say, oh, Izzy, you'd have a poem you'd know and so-and-so, you've got um, a little dance routine that you can do and don't you sing, you know, secondhand rows? Well, you can come too. And I would put on little concerts oh, and I'd charge 10 cents <laughs> and I'd gather sheets from mum and nana and different people and the Watkinses were the only ones that had concrete cement under their house. It was lovely and cool. And they allowed me to use under their house. And we'd gather on a Sunday afternoon and I'd ring a bell and I'd call the street and they'd all come down and they'd pay their 10 cents. And they'd watch these shows, you know. I love it. And, uh, yes, at the time you don't realise, you know, that's actually, I could be bloody Michael Edgeley. Like, what have I done, you know? But it's that idea of storytelling because storytelling is what makes us who we are. If you're not emotionally connected to whatever it is you're doing, you won't remember it. If emotion is involved, you will. And so if a story is exciting and it sparks something in you, you are connected. That's why people have, oh, I have a favourite song, I have a favourite movie, I have a favourite play, because 
something taps into them and they can connect emotionally. Very true. Um, you mentioned before he dropped the performance to the Queen and uh, Prince Philip. <laughs> uh, do you want to elaborate a little well, bit? Well, that was uh, that was crazy. When I started for the State Theatre Company in 1981, um, I thought I'd made it. You know, I was all of. I think I turned 19 that year. It was crazy. And I, there I am on the stage of the Suncorp Theatre in Brisbane, the beautiful Suncorp Theatre. And the following year, 1982, was the Commonwealth Games, you know, then that was at, I think it was at like ANZ, the QE2 Stadium in Brisbane, which is now no longer really. Um, anyway, we've done the production of Annie. And Annie tells the story of an American show, tells the story of Daddy Warbucks and Orphan Annie and Sandy the Dog and blah, 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 blah. And it was the first major, mu- like really big musical. Queensland Theatre Company had done them before, but this one was children and dogs and oh, and we were touring. We were taking it to Rockhampton, to the Pilbeam Theatre in Rocky, to Townsville, to the Townsville Civic and to Mount Isa. And so it was a big show. And the Queensland Theatre Company in 1981 had a large subscription base and Annie was patronised completely. You could not get a ticket to see it. The following year, um, I was getting my hair done by the company. I was sitting at the hairdressers. And Ken Kennett, who's also a past Rocky boy, but who is well into his late 70s now, Ken would be, but he was the publicist for the Queensland Theatre Company. And we had to do a royal performance at Her Majesty's Theatre just before the Dean brothers pulled it down. And, of course, anything to do with state was asked. So, you know, the the, the, the Queensland Opera or, you know, the, the, the Symphony Orchestra, all of that, they were all asked, uh, you know, to come and perform. And we were asked. And so Alan Edwards, the then artistic director, you know, made the decision, we'll do scenes from Annie. And he chose a scene that I happened to be in. So I was like, this is incredible. My grandmother, who was an incredible royalist, as many elderly people are, and I totally understand why they are, and that is fine, she had to buy tickets. She had to go, and they were like $200 a seat back in 1982. Wow. And she bought tickets for Mum and Dad and her and Auntie Sharon and Uncle Errol. They all had to be there to see her granddaughter perform for the Queen. And they waited and they sounded the royal, you know, bells for everyone to stand. And as Mama stood up, as the Queen and Prince Philip sailed in to go up to the royal box, Mama stood and she dropped her purse on the ground. So she was head down, bum up, as the Queen sailed by. (laughs) And it was like, well, that was a good investment, wasn't it? She never got to see the Queen. And then after the show, of course, the Queen comes to speak to each group, but you have to have a representative. So we spoke as a company and said, so who are we going to choose from our company to be in the lineup at the front? You know, should it be the oldest? Should it be the youngest? Should it be the girl playing Annie? Should it, should it, should it? And we decided that it should be the youngest. What a fabulous opportunity. So Danae Denny, who was at the time probably seven, eight, something like that, stood in the front row. The Queen came along. Rod Horton was standing beside me going, oh, a guy walks into a bar with a beer and shut up. <laughs> There's the Queen. Be quiet. Just be quiet. And the Queen came sailing by, Izzy, and she was tiny and she was so beautiful. You thought if you touched her, she'd bruise, you know. And anyway, she came to Danae and she went, and she spoke to Danae and she stood there for quite a while. We were all so excited. We got back to the dressing room and we said, Danae, what did the Queen say? And she went, ah, 
can't remember. Oh, oh. It's like, whose idea was it to choose to make? So, yeah, but a wonderful, wonderful experience. And, of course, do I have a photograph to prove it? No. But I do have photographic evidence uh, of the Queen and the performance and members of the company, but I think you can see my, like, my, you know, my left or my right eye, and that's about <laughs> it. You have that emotional memory though that you oh. just spoke about before and that connection because clearly um you remember every single bit of it oh absolutely it was it was an amazing time to stand on stage at her majesty's theater with her majesty in the building who oh, that that was like it, it was quite overwhelming you know and to have your grand grandmother and parents and aunts and uncles in the audience it, and it was a full house, chocolate block, all the balconies. And it was one of the last big performances at Her Majesty's before it was raised to the ground in the middle of the night, you know. So, yeah, it holds a special place. Yeah. Um, now, following on from that, mm-hmm. um, there's been many more encounters and stories that I'm sure you can tell. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, I think you mentioned that, you know, Jackie Weaver, Paul Hogan, yes. Katie Noonan. Oh, yes. Matthew. Any others that, um, you know, spark special memory? Oh, look, you know, there's just so many. You walk a path and you, you know, you know, you work with all these people and you stop and think about it and you go, did you really do that? Was it somebody else or were you actually there? Because gigs become, they're like a small life when you work on a show. You start at the very beginning and everyone's unsure and you reach the end of it and it's like you've travelled such an emotional journey that you you find in the theatrical world a lot of people going, oh, darling, or oh, darling, 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 darling. And there's all this sweetie darling sort of Patsy and Adina sort of feel. And it's from the world of emotion, I think. It's because we have to become so comfortable and so close to each other very quickly to produce emotion that audiences will respond to and recognise. So, you know, meeting Jackie was was pretty exciting because I grew up with Jackie Weaver on the screen in Caddy and, you know, Picnic at Hanging Rock and stuff like that. So to actually have the opportunity of working with her, and I'd done a show called Cozzy written by uh, the famous Louis Nara, and I'd done two productions of it. But after the first production, I'd won an, a, 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 an acting award for it and then the film came up to audition and I thought, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. I'm, I'm more of a theatre performer, but, you know, we all do it all. We can't say no to anything. So I flew to Sydney twice for these auditions and they said to me, look, you're still in the running, but you're up, up against Genevieve Lemon, who's a dear friend of mine, and Magda Zabanski. And I've never worked with Magda or know Magda, but I know of her work. And I said, well, that's okay. I'm running with really good good girl, so I'm happy about that. And then out of the blue, bloody Jackie Weaver got the role. And I said, if I ever bloody work with that girl, I'm going to tell her off. Well, suddenly I'm cast in Prisoner of Second Avenue by Neil Simon at the Queensland Theatre Company. This would be, uh, oh, it would be ten years ago now, nine years ago, something like that, with Jackie Weaver and her husband, Sean Taylor, the Taylors and the Weavers. But anyway, and all my friends said, oh, here's your opportunity to tell Jackie Weaver off. So I thought, I can't just go. And by the way, you stole my role in the movie of Cozzy. So we got to know each other. And by the end of the second week, you know, she came to dinner and we're having a glass of wine. And Jackie's very good at having a glass of wine. (laughs) And uh, so we'd had a few. And I said, and by the way, and I told her. And her response was, oh, darling, 
You would have been so much better than me. I was bloody awful in that. Oh, yes, you... And I thought, I couldn't believe her graciousness and her ability to give. She just gave. And she's not frightened of her age. She's not frightened of anything. My nana said to her, my nana was a 100 and Jackie came and had lunch with us. And, uh, you know, nana said, Jackie... Why have you been married so many times? And she said, I just love a good wedding, Nana. I just love a good wedding. And that's that's Jackie Weaver. And, you know, what you see with Jackie is what you get. So no wonder America loves her because, you know, she she says it as it is. And they they the other time, just recently, she was in town. She was doing um, Last Cab to Darwin, I think. And uh, she texted, she rang me up, and I was supposed to be going and seeing a show. And she said, hello, darling, where are you? I said, oh, I'm in Brisbane. And she said, so am I. I'm at Gambara's having dinner. Why don't you come down and mummy will buy you dinner? And we got down there, and I said, oh, I love your hair. She said, it isn't mine. And I went, Jackie, stop it. She said, oh, I've been wanting to get work done on my face. She said, but America says... Don't you do that. There's nobody in this country that's got life. Like, there's no real people anymore, you know. They're all, you know, plastic. And so Jackie's getting a lot of work because of her 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 realness. Authentic. Authenticity, yeah. Um, on the flip side, oh, yes. <laughs> you also ran pubs in England. Oh, I know, I know. How does a rocky girl I know. end up running pubs in England? <laughs> yes, I ran the Bull and Bush at Bewbush, the Barn Owl in Caddington, the, the uh, Bird in Hand in Gosmore, and the, uh, the Ewan Lamb on Dunstable Road, Luton. Um, what happened was I was working in the theatre. I was doing uh, They're Playing Our Song. And it required a number of follow spot operators, and so uh, a friend of uh, of mine hired a friend who happened to then become my fiance of ten years. And Lindsay was my follow spot operator, so he was spotting me on stage. And one night he said, "You know, would you like to have an affair?" And I went, oh. "I said, don't you have to be married to have an affair?" I said, "I'm not married. Are you married?" He went, "Oh no, I'm not married." I said, "Well." I'm not married either. And he went, oh, well, do you want to go out to dinner? I said, sure. Cut a long story short, he asked me to marry him. And on the 1st of September 1984, we went to England because he'd spent a lot of time in England and he'd become very close friends with a publican over there. And the publican was off he and his wife, Rebecca, who um, the publican, uh, Keith, was an Australian, actually, an expat. And they were off to ride camels in Tunisia. And as an engagement present, of course, and as an engagement present, they gave us the birding hand in Gosmore for two weeks that we were accommodated and we could drink what we liked, but we had to run the pub. So I'd never poured a beer in my life before. And I'm in an English pub with Geordie accents and give us some chark. Chark, what's chark? Chark that you draw with on the board. Oh, chalk, chalk. So it was really difficult and drawing the beer up and... You know, I have a baby sham and Pono and it's like I'll have a snake bite and I'm going, what are these drinks? And so we got a bit of a name for ourselves and they were looking for relief managers. And so this relief company came and spoke to Lindsay and I. Everyone called us Bruce and Sheila. I don't know. Um, Bruce and Sheila, would you do relief work for us? And so Lindsay went, this is perfect. We can live in pubs, we are accommodated and we get paid. And so for the 12 months that we're away, we ran 
I think it was four. I think in the end we did one other pub for a mate of ours, Gary Scarborough, for a week. But we were long term in four pubs, and oh, we worked on counterfeit rings, and I worked with um, oh Martin, who was Lee Stanley Kubrick's location manager. We read uh, the film Full Metal Jacket in its draft form. Like when I think about this, I go, Did I really do? Like it seems like another world. You it know? really it does. Yeah, yeah, it is another world. And. I don't think I've ever heard quite a honeymoon story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, it was just the engagement. We never actually got married. But anyway, that's another story. That's a whole other story. And then coming back to Australia, um, you is that when you joined CQ Uni or...? No, 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 Izzy. I've only been here for a couple of years, you know, really. Um, now, after I came back from England, I... I was in hospitality for a period of time. I ended up in Threadbow running a little uh, little bar called the Stubel, and um, I did that for about six six months. My aunt and uncle were restaurateurs and restaurant uh, ran resorts around the country, so I worked for them. But my heart has always been with the theatre, so the theatre drew me back. Um, and yeah, so I then went into doing a lot more theatre, but. When Expo hit Brisbane in 88, they left a legacy of a company called the Natural Theatre Company, and they originated in Bath, and they're a street theatre company. And I was actually at Expo sitting there with mum and my father being a retired inspector of police, but at the time still in the force, uh, and mum and I were, were sitting there, and we see these secret agents on the esplanade at Expo, and I've said to Mum, oh, something big's about to happen. Maybe it's some important dignitaries about to arrive. I said, look at all those guys, and they've got earpieces in their ears and reflector sunglasses. And then suddenly they all stopped and turned around and started doing grand jetés, which is a ballet move where you do split runs, basically, along the esplanade. And I went, that is so strange. Then I realised that they were a street theatre company because Queensland had never really been exposed to street theatre the way the Europeans had been, you know. So that really that really surprised me and I wanted to know more about it. And so I bought into that business and I ran that business for 18 years. I was the artistic director of his entertainment for 18 years. We were known as the naturals uh, for a long time, for about four years. But then we realised that we were pitching against the Natural Theatre Company of Bath with the natu- naturals from Brisbane so we work, you know, we tried to work out what it was that we did. You know, is it street theatre? Is it emceeing? Is it supplying bands? Is it, you know, creating scripts? Is it this and this? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it? Is it? So that's how we got Ethan Entertainment. It's still running today. Um, David Coombs, who was my business colleague for eighteen years, he still runs the business with his wife. So it kept so many Queensland actors out of the front seat of cabs and out of uh, the kitchens in hotels. And gave them an opportunity to work in a team of actors improvising in different situations. Um, Brian Nason, who was famous for establishing Grin and Tonic, and Grin and Tonic is now run by Jason Clarewine and Kelly Lazarus, a husband and wife acting team who are actually from Cairns. Uh, but Brian Nason said many moons ago at an awards ceremony at QPAC, he said, you know, they call themselves theatre companies. But they're not theatre companies. They're administrative companies. A theatre company means a company of 
actors. And it's very true, you, you know, you know, and he was sort of he was doing a parallel. He was making an analogy between the Queensland, oh, Queensland, the Australian cricket team, and how amazing they were playing at the time. This is a while ago now. <laughs> a while ago, is he? When real cricket was was cricket. When cricket was cricket, we didn't have the ball tampering incident. Um, and he was saying that you know the reason they win and that they're at the top of their game is that they know what each other's about to do. That analogy applies to an acting troupe. If I throw you that one line, I know that you'll come back with a a physical gesture that will turn us on our way and will kick us on to the next thing. And so we don't really have that. We don't have acting troupes that, you know, stay together for long periods of time and yet that's actually what we need. And so was it through that that you came across some of the, the people that you've helped mentor? Um... Mm, gosh. Um, it's just through – I got involved with the Woodford Folk Festival. That then got me involved with uh, Women in Voice. Actually, maybe it was the other way around. Maybe I started with Women in Voice and then I got involved with the Woodford Folk Festival. I can't remember now. But through that, then, you know, helping Katie Noonan find a vo- – not so much find a voice – but find her connection to her audience. Uh, you know, even Carol Lloyd, the, the late Carol Lloyd, most famous from uh, Railroad Gin, who Railroad Gin was the biggest Queensland band for a long time. Carol was just put into the, you know, the ARIA World of Fame or something like that, Hall of Fame. And Carol lost her battle with cancer only last year. And she was an incredible performer, incredible. And uh, I got her to do Women in Voice, and she said, oh, darling, I so wish I knew these tools back when I'd started as a performer. Uh, And it was about the way you stand on stage. If you spend your your time on, you know, the right side of the stage or OP side of the stage, then you have to balance it and spend the same amount of time on prompt side of the stage because – Auntie Lorna over on prompt has paid the same amount of money as Jenny over here on OP. And so a lot of performers don't really, they don't even realize they're doing it. A lot of artists favor their right. Maybe it's to do with the right hand. Often the muso, the, the, you know, I'm talking about singers tend to, to, to be drawn to their right. I don't know why. I don't know why. There you go. Um, from a, I guess from a where you are now perspective, yeah. we're at um, second year cohort of students yes. teaching, getting close now to that group, seeing the end I line. Know, I know, I um, know. I guess on a couple of different tangents, one, the degree here and mm. what it's offering these students, so many different facets of the industry. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, we start in our first year doing, you know, we play. So we play a lot of games just to get to know who each other is. So we improvise and we also do a lot of mime because as we all know, when we travel to a foreign country and we can't speak the language, we all have the communication of nonverbal. To me, there are two universal languages. One is music in that a particular refrain, a movement, a motif will affect people. Uh, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was most famous for using music to stir, to make, 
people scream. You take some of the underscoring away from those famous uh, horror movies and they're not that scary. It's the music that does it. And also non-verbal communication. So we focus on miming non-verbal and the voice, the, the production of voice. And then we go on to doing, we taste a little bit of Commedia and a little bit of Shakespeare and a little bit of realism and some Brecht. And um, so that's exciting for them to be doing stuff that's so eclectic. It's so different. Uh, you know, Queensland Theatre Company not that long ago actually did a major Brecht with Ursula Jokovich and uh, Mother Courage, which was, you know, a fantastic piece. Uh, Brecht really broke away from the standard theatre in that he allowed the audience to see the changes happening, you know. Uh, but we'll be performing, you know, later in the year uh, in out in the Parklands here uh, in Cairns. So that's a very different because you're in the public space. So you can't say, would you all mind being quiet? I'm about to perform. They're going to say, well, no, this is public space. So it's working with the elements and, and that's, that's really good because Cairns is, you know, an outdoor in the shade venue. Um, and in the second year, you know, my second years uh, this year have had a really interesting time because they've had to do accent work. So they've done some, you know, hello, John Cotney, Mopa, all right then, my darling. So they've done a little bit of a, a, a standard Cockney, you know, uh, plus, you know, a bit of a plum in the mouth and doing a little bit more of the the more upper class British and then doing, you know, you know, uh, uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, you in there, where are you? So doing a standard American. So just getting a sense of playing with accent, I'm not suggesting for one minute that they're going to become masters of an accent in a moment, but it gives them the idea of play and how we as actors have to mimic in a way. There is a mimicry. We have to have a good ear, but they also did Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood, whereby what a fantastic radio play, and they had to learn the importance of underscoring like Alfred Hitchcock had done. So, you know, creating their own foleys, their own sound effects, as well as having a bed underneath of an ocean. And now they're doing, you know, the, the second years are working on the appreciation of music and the actor. So we're looking at, you know, things like cabaret, you know, Bob Fosse, Candor and Ebb, the biggest music theatre, you know, uh, teams in the world. But then looking at the power of, of Paul Kelly and Kev Carmody with, you know, From Little Things, Big Things Grow, the story of Vincent Lignari and Gough Whitlam. I mean, most people know the chorus. They actually don't know the verses, and it's in the verses that you hear the story. Also, um, you know, Strange Fruit, which was written as a poem in the beginning of the turn of last century, and then it was made into a song that Billie Holiday made famous, and it was talking about the lynchings of African Americans in the Deep South and how powerful these songs, these three-minute windows into people's lives can affect and change. And so the students are going, bloody hell, you know, we're taking a lot here. And they are taking on a lot. But I think if I can give them a solid smorgasbord, a taste of all these different worlds, then they will, something will spark and they'll go, I love that. That that's wow, that's it. And you know, we never do one thing for life. Mm. You know, the days of, you know, my father, you know, he worked in the railway, but he really wanted to be a policeman and he joined the police force and then he retired as a policeman. Dad's from that last bastion of of the world where you do one thing and you do it for life. 
I think we've all realised that we're here for such a short time that, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're not passionate about it, then maybe you should think twice about it, you know, because you've got to enjoy it. You've got to love it up. So true. Um, you were talking about, um, you know, the, the Cairns community and from little things, big things, but yeah. I'm going to take that quote from you. Um, I'm sensing that there, there really is some, something's about to happen here in Cairns. Um, I can, I've, been, I've been saying that now, ever since I've got here, there's this feeling that we're on the precipice, mm-hmm. that we're looking over and we're going, we can't quite see what it is, but it's big. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the government has recognised as as, as we have as Australians, that our big cities are too big. We have to look at alternatives. We know that you can find talent. It doesn't matter how small the community is. You will find that opera singer. You will find that poet. You will find that musician. Cairns is ripe. It's ready. We have international tourists on a daily basis. We're going to have a brand new civic centre. You know, we need to be addressing the needs of our international tourists who are coming to us. Um, you know, so much that Aaron Faso has done with the Straits, uh, black comedy coming out of Townsville, out of, you know, Townsville-born uh, guys. But we also need to address the fact that our Asian visitors and our European visitors love the arts. They love art galleries. They love theatre performances. They love performances outdoors. So my students here in Cairns and hopefully those guys in Townsville and in Mackay will start to grow their own acting troops and their own dreams to be producing stuff that they can make that they can make a living from. We don't we can't just be an actor unless of course you're a show off like Jackie Weaver. Um <laughs> But, you know, that is hard to maintain. Even Jax will say that, you know, for a long time, for all of the film that she did, she was still looking She was looking for jobs. Uh, so it doesn't matter how big you are. A lot of people think, oh, you know, they're all rolling in it. You know, well, they're not really. But you've got to think of how you keep that grind business going so that the money keeps coming in so you don't get left behind. You know, because we are a money-driven society, which is terribly sad. Mm. If we weren't a money-driven society and we were more about what we each bring, life would be very, very different. I suppose, you know, I'm not very good at giving advice. I mean, we're we're, actually, that's, that's wrong, Izzy. We're all very good at giving advice. We're not very good at taking it or advising ourselves. I know that this is going to sound old hat, but... I was told how short life is and I'm realising now I'm well and truly past halfway and I'm shocked that I am. I'm really, really shocked. You just need to make the decision as to what it is that you want and just go out and do it. Go and get it. There will be so many other people that will be sitting on their hands thinking about doing what you've done. Oh, gosh, I wish I was as brave as Izzy. Izzy went and just did it. I wish I did that. We are so frightened of being wrong. Well, gee whiz, isn't that terrible? The opposite to that is being right. So what? You can only find out about being right if you are at some point wrong. We None of us want to be wrong. Oh, get over it. Go for it. Ask questions. We had a visitor in Jason Clarwine not that long ago, and Jason is the artistic director now of Grin and Tonic Theatre Troupe, which tours 
And he wanted to work with Richard Attenborough, who's David Attenborough's brother, and Richard works in the theatre. And he had this idea that he'd bring Richard out to direct a show. So he thought, I'll send an email. And he sent an email to Richard. Richard said, oh, look, you know, I'm very busy. I've got lots on and blah, blah, blah. No. Jason went, oh, right, okay. Anyway, a couple of years passed, and Richard had stopped being the artistic director of the company he was running. And he sent a message to Jason and said, oh, look, you sent me an email a couple of years ago, and, you know, I consider coming up now. Now, tell me, what it is it you want me to do? And so Jason spoke to the Queensland Theatre Company and said, I've got Richard Attenborough to come and direct this Shakespeare. And they went, no, you haven't. And he did. Yeah. And so Jason told the story to our students that, you know, don't be – don't be annoying. Don't drive people crazy. But ask the question. Just ask. What's the worst thing that can happen? You might get a no or you might get a maybe or you might get a call in two years to say, you know what, I could do that for you. So don't be frightened of asking anyone anything and don't be frightened of going for it and, and letting people know that's what I'm doing. I'm going to be that. That's brilliant. I, would, I just wish our listeners could see and visualise what I'm seeing with your, all of your acting hand gestures today. It's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. It's no wonderful. worries, Izzy. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Like this podcast? Don't forget to rate, review and share with your friends.